Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. Heavenly Father, we do come to you today. And Lord, we just pray in the name of Jesus, even before we, we open your word and, and that we're equipped by your word and we're corrected by your word and we're encouraged by your word. Lord, allow our hearts and our minds to just be settled. Um, Lord, as we've just been just ushering in just our hearts to worship, you, you are always worthy of our worship. And Lord God, our hearts seem to wonder and they just kind of, they come and go, Lord, and, and allow us in this place, Lord, just to, just to receive what your word has for us. Lord God, for all of us, maybe our week has been absolute chaos. And maybe this is even for the first time this week that people have actually sat down. Lord, I pray that, that you would just bless their obedience of being here and worshiping together. I pray that you would just encourage them and that you would equip them and, and maybe even correct some things if you need to. And we just pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would do what your word says that it would do. And we just pray it all in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, specifically. And while you're flipping there, um, well, I'll just say this. If you have forgotten your Bible, don't have a Bible, we actually have some Bibles kind of strategically placed underneath the chairs. Um, we believe that there's high value in people actually reading the Bible, whether you do it by a book or do it by, uh, you know, uh, version or whatever it takes. Um, just please get into the Word of God and allow the Word of God to get into you. Um, it's that important. That is really a foundational truth that has been a part of this church since its founding. Well, we're in week four of our series called Family Dynamics. And kind of the, the, the theme throughout all of these weeks and even the weeks to come is how, for us, how can we keep vintage values through cultural change? How can we keep vintage values Older values, values, timeless truths that from the Word of God, how can we maintain those even when culture is changing? And culture is always changing. There's been no perfect culture. Our, our culture now is not perfect. Um, the culture when you grew up was not perfect. The, the culture that Jesus grew up, and we learned this last week, was not perfect, right? So, so erasing the idea of there being a, poor, a perfect culture, so all of us... How, how is it that we, as, as individuals and as parents and as, as children and as grandparents, how can we maintain vintage values through cultural change? I believe that it is possible. I believe that, that this series has, has helped a lot of people. It's helped me. Um, I've been resonating over these for months, and it's already helped me, and you'll hear a little bit about that here in, in just a minute. But we're in week four. This is actually part one of a series. Next week is going to be part two. So if there are some things that are left, done from, left undone from this text, um, you've got to come back next week, right? That's the hook. You've got to come back next week. It'll make more sense. I baited you in. I never was a good fisherman, but you're going to come back next week either way. But, we're, you know, for us, our family is... Uh, uh, Marla, my wife, and I have been married for 20 years, and we have an 18-year-old who's a senior in high school, and now we have a middle schooler. And it's been so real to us over the last couple weeks of where we're kind of forced to sit back and maybe look at the way that we've raised our kids 
we're, we're really forced to sit back and look and say, wow, things have changed so much even within my home. And they seem like they've changed even over the last two weeks. Like this, this tide has turned and now, you know, my, Austin has his driver's license and he's a senior in high school and now he's mobile. Now he's able to go do some things. And maybe some of you have actually had kids who moved out of the house and you're like, that is awesome. Live it up. You know, he's a senior. Give him freedom. Get him out of the house. Make plans for his room. You know, all of that. And I can see the look on your face and you're like, oh, freedom. I love freedom. We're, we're still in the stage of we, 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 we want the freedom, but then we're also, we're forced to sit back and look at really the way we've raised our kids. And kind of a question that, that's been resonating in my mind and my heart, and, and this is the question maybe I want us to have answered over the next couple of weeks, is how can we make our faith, or our family's faith stick? You see, I've been forced to look at this and say, okay, my son is a senior in high school, he's got one more year, and then he's, he's going off, and he's doing whatever it is that God wants him to do. You see... I'm going to give you some some kind of uh, some things that that uh, we've used in our home, but I I can't tell you that they're you know that they're they're the most reliable, they're the most proven as far as the way that we've done it. I know the word of God is proven; it's true; it's always reliable. But I can't tell you the way that we've done it because we still have kids in the house. Maybe in a couple of years I'll be able to give you a little bit more detail to see maybe we've um, could have improved on some things. But that's the question that I've been kind of wrestling with is, okay, is, okay, when Austin gets out of the house, by the way, my son Austin is the drummer, and it's, when he walks out of the house, is, is his faith going to stick? I mean, we've kept him in church. He's been in church. We've, we've done devotions. We've had prayer time. We pray every day. We do all those things. But, but is it going to stick? Some things I learned years ago that kind of they've shaped the way that, that I, have, I personally have parented is I've, I've actually drawn back and I've, I've actually done studies on the way that, that people think in different generations. And there's been a drastic change in the way that people think from even from a generation older than me and then our, my generation. I'm knock, knock, knocking on 40's door, so if you're around that, you're probably in my generation. Um, you don't have to clap at that, dude, seriously. It's 40. Like, for real 40. And yet... They're younger generations, you know, that, that are, are younger folks that are, are a different generation. But, but generationally, there, there have been changes in the way that people think. The generation before mine, they saw the Bible as absolute truth. That was foundational. Even if they didn't go to church, they knew there was something special about the Bible. So when they would look at a verse from the Bible, they, they lifted it up and they held it in high esteem. But then my generation came along. And my generation has done some things they call deconstruction. And they've done it by asking questions. And they've deconstructed everything. And they've looked at the previous generations and they said, well, if you said that the Bible was absolute truth, why, did, why are you on your third marriage? Think about it. So they've, they've pulled that back and they've said, okay, this is a truth that you say is so valid in your life. Why aren't you doing it? So what the, the generation, my generation, and even the, the, the generations coming now, they have done deconstruction. Now they look at marriage and they say, no, 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 no. Marriage has no absolute truth. There is no absolute truth. So that is the standpoint 
that generations, the generation that, pre- or the, excuse me, that, that follows me in my generation as a, as a Gen Xer, that's our generation. Deconstructing everything. Marriage, redefined. Relationship with God, redefined. Religion, redefined. We don't need to go to church. We've redefined that. Now we do church at home. We have online church. We have convenient church. We have YouTube church. We have Pandora church. We have all these things. Now we just have music church and no preaching church. Now we just have preaching church and no music church. We have preaching church, music church, and no people church. And that's when they do church at home. They've deconstructed the meaning of everything. And unfortunately... That's where our culture is right now. They have deconstructed everything. So now, what's kind of guided my, my thought process with my kids, and, I've, uh, and maybe I'm weird by studying this stuff out, but I want to do everything that I can do as a dad and as a husband and as a pastor to help my family and to have their faith to stick. One great thing about, really, my generation in the generations that follow mine is, yeah, they've deconstructed things, but they want to be a part of a bigger story. Well, there's no bigger story to be a part of than God's story of redemption in the world. There's no greater story. That God, if people, people look at the Bible and they say, yeah, that's, that's vintage values, and they kind of rest on that, that's vintage, that means vintage, that means old, that means it's not happening anymore. But yet, there's this incredible thing, if we would actually bring our family back to the Word of God, some profound things, and I believe that you're going to have some of those revealed today, some, some amazing things, and really things we've been studying for the last year and a half at this church, is... The Bible, yes, we know revelation. We know what the end result is. God wins, Satan loses, right? We all want to be on the winning team. Everybody say amen. Okay, good. That's a kindergarten answer. That's all what we want. But you see, that's the end of the story. But we're still in the middle of the story of the church age. We're still in the evangelist, you know, the, the evangelizing stage. We're supposed to be sharing God with people, sharing Jesus with people, allowing them to have a relationship with God and inviting them into our lives to give them hope that there's something better, there's something more tangible. That maybe all the questions are being asked actually have answers, but we can't look to ourselves to get the answers. We have to go to something that is timeless. We're going to see some of this. And I think there's no better text to jump into than this one here. Because in Joshua 24, there's been some amazing things that have happened. And at this stage, Joshua is the leader. He's, he's the leader that followed Moses. He was kind of like Moses' right-hand man. And he took care of a lot of things. He, Moses kind of mentored and brought him up. And now Joshua is he's the leader. He is God's guy. He's the, he is the spokesperson. He is all of those things. And yet, he had, he had had all these battles and all these battles. And they had taken the promised land. And now the people started to get comfortable. Which is exactly where American Christianity is. We are comfortable. So why wouldn't we go to this text? Let's go into it. 
when Joshua is being asked, or he's, he's being challenged, and he's talking about his own family, and, and he's, he's kind of looking at how other people are living their lives, and, and he's, he's still trying to bring them into some spiritual truth here and trying to help them along, but there's a very, very defining line in his walk with God, then you're going to see it right here in verse 14. In front of the people, he says, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness, with every part of you. Serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But, in serving the, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But he says something. This is a profound truth. I'll really dig into this next week. He says, you can do what you want to do. Culture, people, you can do what you want to do. But what does it say at the end of verse 15? He says, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I need to say it one more time for emphasis, don't I? But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. He says, culture, people, music, media, whatever. You can do what you want to do. But he says, but it's going to start in my house and I'm going to serve the Lord. And I'm going to teach my kids to serve the Lord. My kids may think differently than me. They may, they, their whole lives may be different than mine. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That would be a great place for you to start. But this morning, I'm going to take specifically, and I'm just going to jump right into verse 14, and then next week I'm going to clear up the rest of it. I had so much material that I wanted you to get every bit of it. I didn't want to just whitewash it. I wanted us to go deep into this. So, so we're really going to tease it out. Verse 14, he says, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Now fear the Lord. In the Bible, there's two different types of fear. That are predominantly talked about. There's the, the, the fear of the Lord in all of us. It's not saying to, to shrink back and be afraid of. That's not what this word fear is talking about. That's one way that it's used. But when it says fear the Lord, it means to stand in awe or to honor. To stand in awe. Put God in His place. Don't put yourself in His place. Don't put your work in His place. Don't put your family in His place. Don't put the pursuit of prosperity in His place. Don't put friendships in His place. Put God on the throne of your life. So when it says to fear the Lord, it says to be in awe of, of all that God has done, but more specifically in who God is. The Redeemer, the King, the Creator, the author of life, in awe of who God is, and to honor. To honor. Just to go deeper into this, there's going to be really four main takeaways. In fearing, in fearing, there's trust. In fearing, there's trust. 
You see, in, in worldly fear, this is a whole different way that we have to think. In worldly fear, there is no trust. Because if somebody inflicts worldly fear upon you, you're not going to trust them and you're not going to get close. But yet God wants to usher in a relationship with us and He says, be in awe of me. But yet God was not so far away, He sent Jesus to walk the earth. That He was approachable. That He says, come to me. He says, come to me. Be in awe of Him. Give Him honor, but understand what He has done for you. And it starts with trust. See, I love this because with Joshua, he does the same thing in the, in, in the text just preceding this one. Let's jump back in. Chapter 24, and this is actually going to be in verse 2. We're going to read verses through 13. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I, that's being God, I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried out to the Lord for help, and he, meaning God, put the darkness between you and the Egyptians. He, God, brought the sea over them and covered them. Remember that miracle? You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I, God, brought you, brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you from out of his hand. See, he's telling the story of the people of Israel. He's reminding the people, hey, there's been a great story that's been being written the whole time, and you're a part of it. It's the same thing that we have to learn now. It's, yes, we, we, should, we should trust God. And, 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 and part of fearing God is the idea of trust that He has brought us into this great story. The story of redemption. That the things that God, that maybe the things that you've done wrong in your life, and as God goes in and He sanctifies you and He sets you apart, that He would turn those things and then you would be able to go and help someone else. You see, that's rewriting a story in somebody else's life. The reason why we gather as a church is not so we can just come and hear people like me and sing songs like that we just sung. It's so that we could come together and, and worship with one another and love on one another and to encourage one another and build one another up. We're all part of a great story that God is writing right here in Dublin and Lawrence County. He continues, verse 11, he says, Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did all the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, 
Anybody want to try that themselves? Hivites and the Jebusites. Glad I'm done with that. And I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and, and bow. But I gave you the land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat it from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. He is telling the people, God has been at work for a long time. God is faithful even when you were unfaithful, church. Even when the Israelites were unfaithful, God's faithfulness remains. And he says, God's faithfulness and, and his, the fulfillment of his promises should lend us to trusting him more. To trusting him with every part of us. With all faithfulness. In our life, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it's a verse that you're familiar with. It says that we live by faith. And what's the last part? Not by sight. You see, the walk... This is a very, very interesting thing. And I would just say this. If you're someone who's skeptical of the faith, I totally understand that. But I want you to know this. The Christian walk is not, it's not a blind faith. It's not a, a, a construction of beliefs built on no foundation. You see, the person who, of which the foundation was built, he resurrected. So that's the foundation of which all our belief is on. But there's also other proof. It's not just a blind faith. And when we look at this verse, it kind of makes us think that. We live by faith, not by sight. That means, oh, we're just blind. We just kind of go through life blindly. No. God has put evidence in our path of His existence. Why, should, why we should trust Him. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this. This also is on the screen. It says, Now faith is confidence of what we hope for and assurance that we do not see. So there's confidence. Faith is not blind faith. It's confidence. As we live our life and you have a relationship with God, He reassures you that, hey, we're okay. We're in fellowship. We're tight. We're writing this story together. And He says, uh, it's the confidence of the hope that we long for. And that's the end of the story, that God wins and we're on the winning team. Of which everybody said? Amen. Amen. And assurance, assurance, that means when things are going bad, we still have assurance that God still wins. And we don't do so because of ourselves, we do that because we, we live in, in a healthy fear, in an honor and a respect for who God is, the promises that He has kept, and the future that He holds for us. And we see that there's also blessings for those who who have not actually seen God. In, in John 20, 29, it says this. It says, he, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says, because you have seen me, you've believed. He's like, you've seen me, so you've believed. Of course, I was here. He's like, y you've seen me, so you believed. Doesn't, I mean, am I here? You can see me. But look what it says for all of us. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed so that's us Jesus our savior our king our hero the author and perfecter of our faith the cornerstone of which all of our belief lies he said blessed are you blessed am I he says because you have not seen and yet you have believed 
that you trust him at his word and you trust the evidence. The second part of in fearing, there's authority. There's authority. There's authority. Now I'll just say this. People push back from this. But I would just say, I just want to kind of dig into this a little bit. We believe a lot of things on the authority of someone else. For instance, when I was in eighth grade, uh, my, my physical science teacher, his name was Mr. Kettlecamp, and he taught, me, um, he taught me the solar system by way of a pizza, right? So, true story. So, like, by pizza and all, you know, the whole thing spinning and, you know, pepperoni and cheese and all. I don't know where the cheese fits, but all the stuff on it, you know, and it kind of spins around and it's all kind of held in place and the whole, all that stuff that I'm not going to bore you with. But I believed that there was a solar system, although I'd never seen it, on his authority. Many of you ladies, maybe you watch the show Say Yes to the Dress. I, unfortunately, I will lose all kind of man points with this. I, unfortunately, um, am subjected to say yes to the dress on regular occasion. Uh, the ladies in my house like to watch it. Therefore, I have to watch it. So, you know, I, I watch all these ladies go in, and we watch the one in, like, in, in Atlanta, and then there's another one somewhere else, and I've kind of seen them all, and it all ends the same. You know, somebody's crying. They're always mad at their sister-in-law or their sister or their mom. And the whole, You know what I mean? My honest ladies, raise your hand. Is that true or not? It's, well, you didn't raise your hand, but it's true. You believe it on my authority, I guess. I don't know. But I see these, these women, they come in and, you know, they're sitting there. They bring their whole entourage. All these people speaking into the dress that they should be, you know, that they should be married in and all that. And, and, and there's some, some marriage wedding expert comes out, a, a dress expert, and comes out and he says, Oh, I think this dress would look just fine on you. And then they bring dress after dress after dress, and mother-in-law shoots it down, then mother shoots it down, then sister-in-law shoots it down, next-door neighbor shoots it down, dog shoots it down. And, you know, before long, they're on like the 45th dress, and then all of a sudden, that we have believed on the authority of this guy that the dress was going to be the right one. And eventually, ta-da, because it's TV, and it all happens in 30 minutes, but it actually probably took about 30 days, you know, 30 minutes, and voila, she's got the perfect dress, blah, 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 blah. Right? But they believe that that dress is going to work on the authority of the person bringing the dress out. If, gentlemen, just to be balanced here and maybe get some credibility back, if you wanted to learn how to throw a fastball and, and you had the opportunity for Tom Glavin, right, the brave guy, I'm not a Braves fan, but I'm throwing you a bone here, um, Georgians, and if Tom Glavin said, hey, I want to teach you how to throw a fastball, you would believe that he could teach you how to throw a fastball on the authority of him being a major league pitcher, right? Am I right? It would happen. So we believe many things on the authority of other people, but why shouldn't we believe things on the authority, specifically things of faith on the authority of the person who predicted his death, who predicted his resurrection, and he promises a great return. It's the same Jesus in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul writes about, about Jesus, how he, he reveals himself to his, his own half-brother and to Peter and to 500 people and to people after that, and he kind of reveals himself to all these people. It's Jesus. He, he predicted his death, his resurrection, and he didn't just go hide to prove it. He went and made it public. 
in the movement of Christianity went forth. There's no other, no other religion that can make that claim. None. Every other person who has created a world religion, they are in a grave or there's proof that they died. But not our Savior. So we, we believe on the authority of Jesus and His resurrection that He is who He said He is and He would do what He said He would do and He will return when He says He will return. So how can you make your, faith, your, your family's faith stick? One, teach them who to trust. Teach them that they're a part of, of a great story. It's a story that God is writing right now. Teach them to live under the authority of God. But then also, some other things that reveal His authority. Maybe you're an outdoors person, maybe you're not. Maybe you'll look up today for the first time. In Psalm 19, if you would hold your place in Joshua and go to Psalm 19. It's to the right in your Bible, just a little bit. Psalm 19, verse 1 through 6. Even creation, creation itself, it reveals God's authority. Creation. Verse 1, Psalm 19. It itself is a creation psalm. Verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, He has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from His pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run His course. It rises on one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Every day, the heavens, the sky, the sun, the clouds, the moon... They speak over us about this Creator who has authority over us. And yet He still chose to send His Son to walk among us. But His creation every day says day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. It never stops. There is no people group that are exempt from God. None. No people group. That's what this is talking about. Every day creation reveals a deeper need for us to fall into the authority of Creator God. Every single day. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Therefore no one has an excuse for not Seeking God. No one. No one. No one. It doesn't matter what culture they're in. There's no one exempt. Creation itself. It should beckon us to fall under the authority of our Creator. 
Of course, the resurrection reveals his authority. We talked about that. But even morality reveals his authority over us. This is piggybacking on something we talked about a couple weeks ago. See, humans were made in the image of God. And it says, in the image of God, in his, in his likeness, we were made. So we have some, we, there are some things about us that God has specially planted in us that are not in the animals, they're not in the trees, they're nowhere else, but they're in us. And among them is a level of morality. And every single person has a seed put in us that either approves or accuses us of our behavior. God makes it no mystery that He created us, that He planted that seed. It's part of the the image, the fingerprint of God that's among us. That if He created us, we are under His authority, even our morality. But everyone's morality is just a little bit different. Just a little bit different. If somebody is not a follower of Jesus, you are basically left to, to... uh, you have your, your morality, your conscience, if you will. And that's all you have. And your conscience is subjective to media, to your upbringing. To your, it's subjective to your friends. It's subject to your work. And all of that, they shape your views. But if you're a Christian, the foundation of your morality now is being informed by the Holy Spirit. Two completely different worlds. A morality outside of a relationship with God, you're left to your own devices. And that way is infinitely bad. But if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've given your life to Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit informing your morality. And He's shaping you and He's training you and He's correcting you and He's equipping you. Two completely different worlds. But in every person... Christian, follower of Jesus, or not a follower of Jesus, even your morality speaks to the Creator. Because as it tells us in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, look it up on your time. He says, we were made in the image and in the likeness of God. And among those things is our morality, the, the, the ability to figure out what is right and what is wrong. You see, animals don't have that. They have instinct. And the only way that they know is by, they know us and they like to be around, like dogs for instance, they like to be around people, but they don't have a morality. They don't know right and wrong. They know what you train them. They're social, but they know what what you train them. We, each person instinctively, have, have a conscience within us that God planted it in us, part of the fingerprint of God that either accuses or approves of our behavior. But a Christian has the Holy Spirit to speak into that, to set us apart, to help us in our journey and walk with God. Without that, you're left alone. Then we also have a promise in Ezekiel 36, 26. This was prophetic many years before Jesus. And and this is what God says through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. We have this promise that God says, hey, I'm going to be active in your life. And there's going to be a time when, when I'm going to put the Holy Spirit within you and I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. And you're not just going to live for yourself. 
Because when you live for yourself, you are foundationally weak. But he says, I'm going to put something new in you. I'm going to put a new heart in you and a new spirit. That you're going to long for good and, you're, and the new spirit is going to be equipped with the Holy Spirit. who's going to speak into your life to help you, to shape you, to help your family's faith stick. But then the next verse says this in, in Ezekiel 36, 27. It says, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So the Holy Spirit is, it, it isn't something that we're just implanted with, we're just given. He says, it, there's also this inner drive that, and he says, and I will move you to follow my decrees. That the Holy Spirit is going to speak to us so we grow in being like Christ and living under his authority. Then also, part of fearing, the third thing I would say, in fearing, there's always love. There's always love. And God's love is found in Jesus. 1 John 4 says this. Probably some verses you're familiar with. This is how God showed his love among us. And what did he do? He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, love is found in Jesus Christ. And in, in fearing, in respecting, in giving honor to, we have to start with Jesus. To trust, to trust who He is, that, that He would do that on the authority, really on the authority of His resurrection. And now, on what He did, he, he, we have the picture of love. That He... That how God showed his love among us, that he sent his one and only son into the world, that we might live through him. That we might live through him. God's love is inseparable. Uh, Romans 8.39 says this, Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Those of you, some of you right now, maybe even your family or in your marriage or you individually, you feel like you're not winning right now. Maybe some of you feel like you're absolutely beaten down right now. Like, I, I had a walk with God and then I walked away from God. And maybe I'm trying to come back and I'm trying to make baby steps. I want to be farther along than I am. I just want you to know, and please reflect upon this, the verse and the truth that's, that's really driving this verse. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of God. Because Jesus says so. Nothing You think and you want to be farther along spiritually than where you are. God's love sustains you so you don't, get, you don't drift back too far away from Him to keep you going. And I have to tell you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are winning. Even if your emotions make it seem like you're not. You're winning. You're winning. God's love welcomes us as family also. 1 John 3.1 See what great love the Father has lavished, lavished, love that word, has lavished on us. That we, we, Christians, followers of Jesus, should be called children of God. And look at the exclamation point there in the last part. And that is what we are. 
I love that. When, when, when this was pinned, I'm sure John was like, he was fired up at this point, and he, he kind of read that. See, uh, the, the great love that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. That's a verse of declaration. So in fearing, there's trust, there's authority, there's love, and lastly, there's worship. There's adoration. There's worship. One of my favorite authors, he quoted worship as this. He says, worship is an act of the abandoned heart adoring its God. Worship is an act of the abandoned heart adoring its God. I'm going to end my, my time this morning. Just I want to ask you some questions. Because all of this kind of culminates with the people who are making decisions in the home. Maybe you're, you're a married couple and you're trying to raise kids and, and, and that's your family. Maybe for you, you're a single mother and you're just trying to raise kids and spiritually kind of grow them along and you have no help at home. I don't know. But all of this kind of goes back to the idea of what are we worshiping? What are we worshiping? All of these, these ideas, the trust, the authority, the love, it all culminates here. And I love what John Eldridge wrote. That worship is an act of the abandoned heart adoring its God. I have to say, what is the God of your life right now? That's kind of heady. I'll ask some other questions to kind of reveal the same thing. What do you sacrifice for? What do you sacrifice for? What do you sacrifice for? What do you find yourself talking about outside of these walls? What do you find yourself talking about? If you're always talking about fishing, there might be a problem there. I don't know. There might be a problem there. I'm not your Holy Spirit, but it might be. If you're always talking about something else, and you're never drifting back, and you're never talking about Jesus, you're never talking about the work that He's doing in your life and in other believers' lives, then that may show that there's a problem in your walk with God. What do you give your money to? That's a big indicator. What do you give your money to? Like, you know what? I'm, I'm, I give my money. I'm giving my money to this, and I'm giving money to that. I've got to keep my kids in this, and I've, I've got to do this, and I've got to have that, and I've got to have the latest toy. What do you give your money to? Because what you give your money to ultimately will determine what you're worshiping. Ask the same question a different way. When you get frustrated... Do you blame God for wrecking your plans? When you get frustrated, do you blame God for wrecking your plans? Like, God, I can't believe you did that. I was going to do this, and I was chasing that dream, and I wanted that, and all of a sudden you changed my plans. Do you blame God, or do you fear God and sit back in awe of Him and say, you know what? Your plan's better than mine anyway. 